Welcome to the 3VB podcast series, 3VB Speaks. Speaking to us from the Chambers Library today, we have David Quest QC and James McWilliams giving their advice on acting for fraudsters. David is a leading commercial silk, specialising in commercial and financial fraud amongst other areas. Many of David's cases have an international element, and he is very experienced in the conflicts of jurisdiction, conflicts of law, and cross-border enforcement issues that are often raised in such work. He is frequently involved in offshore litigation, particularly in the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands. Recently, David was heavily involved in the drafting of the Digital Dispute Resolution Rules, published by the UK Jurisdiction Task Force of LawTech UK. James is one of 3VB's most promising juniors, frequently instructed on complex international and high-value civil fraud and asset tracing disputes. His recent work in this field has included acting for General Electric in proceedings in the Cayman Islands arising out of the $3.6 billion Ponzi scheme operated by Thomas Petters, and acting for the joint trustees of Derek Hood, once the foremost classic car dealer in Europe, in a £40 million claim by a classic car investor. He has extensive experience of all aspects of fraud litigation, including applications for a wide variety of interim relief, disclosure applications of all kinds, and in contempt of court and related applications. In this podcast, David and James will consider some of the particular tactical and strategic issues faced by defendants to fraud claims. We've given this podcast a slightly provocative title, Acting for Fraudsters. And whilst I can't speak for James, none of my clients are fraudsters, of course. Um, But even the most uh, scrupulously honest clients are at risk of facing allegations of frauds. And and much of what we hear about fraud practice tends to be focused on claimants, how to trace assets, how to get information from third parties, how to get freezing injunctions. We're going to talk today more from a tactical and case management perspective about how, as lawyers, we can best represent defendants to fraud cases. So, James, how does it normally all start for someone accused of fraud? Very often, the case will start with a freezing injunction. That's the first the client hears about it. And there are a number of enormous pitfalls for a client when they're faced with a freezing injunction at the start of the claim. In fact, we could talk for an entire podcast uh, talking about them. Uh, I think one of the most dangerous, certainly in my experience, is the desire on the part of the client to immediately just try and get rid of the injunction. It's definitely understandable from a human perspective. The order hits them like a bolt out of the blue. It's a shock. They find they can't access their own money, even though the order says that they can. Uh, And then they get told that they have to reveal all of the details about their financial affairs and assets in a matter of hours or, or days. It's just too much to take in. And I think for lots of people, the immediate response is to become obsessed with just getting rid of the order as quick as humanly possible. And I I think that's a mistake. Generally speaking, you're only going to have one shot at getting rid of a freezer. And if you're going to do that properly or decide whether you want to do it, you need to take the time to understand the case and scrutinise the application that's been made against you. It's just not something that can happen uh, overnight, whatever your client might want. And it's really important to take that time because the stakes are so high uh, in this context. If you fail, that's usually it. You're going to be hit with an enormous costs order. And then the other side use that as a stick to beat you with for the rest of the case. And that's particularly true if you have a go at discharging the injunction on merits grounds, because you can end up with a judgment from a high court judge making findings about your client or the merits of the case that can cause you real damage later on. Uh, You can find yourself going to trial several goals down. 
Of course, the flip side is if you win and you manage to discharge the injunction, the prize is huge. Um, you take the wind out of the other side's sails, they've spent hundreds of thousands on a strategy they think is going to win them the case, uh, and it's just blown up in their face. So the best advice defendants, um, I think, just take the, the time to get their heads above water, to recover from the shock, and decide in a considered manner whether or not they want to have a crack at getting rid of the order. I mean, in my experience, one of the most difficult things for clients to deal with is asset disclosure, uh, which of course is something that's imposed right at the start and has to be responded to in, in very short order. Uh, I mean, I mean how, how, how do clients view those kind of orders? Most of them, in my experience, view it as a complete affront. <laughs> I have to tell them what. The yeah. People just can't get over it. And it is shocking. I mean, we're sort of inured to it because we see it so often. But it is a very, very draconian order. Uh, and not only do they have to say everything, they have to do it so, so quickly. Uh, and often people say, well, I just, I just don't want to do it. And a, a big part of our job as lawyers is saying, no, you've got to do it. And not only must you do it, it's so important we get it right. Because otherwise, you're just going to have the whole case turn into litigation about the freezing order. And you'll be on the receiving end of applications to cross-examination or an extremist committal. Yes, I think one of the risks for defendants is, as in Watergate, <laughs> it's sometimes not the crime, but the, but the cover-up. And the possibility of the other side finding some failure in, in asset disclosure allows them to sort of shout cover up uh, from the start. But cer certainly it's true that particularly clients who are not familiar with the sort of English or common law system do, do regard, and, and rightly, asset disclosure orders as something very onerous and very intrusive. But I agree, it's something you've got to get right, um, otherwise you really damage yourself going forward. Now, what, what about the return date? What sort of challenges ought one to be thinking about at that stage? The first is whether or not you are going to try and make a discharge application or not. Now, the return date usually is anywhere between 7 or 14 days after the original order. It's a very rare case indeed where you're going to be in a position to try and discharge the order at that initial hearing. But if you think you might want to, then you want to look to setting in place a reserving your right and your ability to do so later on. So it's very important you don't let the order be continued without reserving your right or setting out down a timetable um, to bring a challenge. Often though, the, the real focus of the return date is on issues that have arisen uh, about the order. And there may well be things that need to be addressed in order to make the order livable or bearable for, for your client. First of all, one may well need to have a look at a challenge, for example, to, to living expenses if you're dealing with an individual client. The, threshold or the provision in the order is usually set unrealistically low um, that just doesn't reflect what that client spends uh, and you need to sort that out. Now usually, hopefully, the, the, the claimants will be sensible about it but you do have cases where they're not. Uh, I had a case um, earlier this year where uh, the client had assets of, he had a £45 million house in London, uh, he had been gambling several million pounds over the course of a few evenings, uh, but the other side had set the, the living expenses threshold at, at £10,000 a month. Uh, it simply just didn't reflect his lifestyle even on, on their case uh, and that was something that we had to deal with. Similarly, if, if you're acting for a business, you've got a little bit more flexibility because of the, the ordinary and proper course of business exception. But it may well be that there are aspects of that business that you need to secure, depending on whether or not there's expenditure that's planned that's going to fall within that exception. So it's quite an interesting um, recent case 
uh, called Orange Grape Spirit and, and Nueva, which considered the, the breadth of that exception. And in that case, the business hadn't been trading. And so the, the court held, well, it's not in the ordinary proper course, but this is just not a business that's, that's been carrying on. Uh, nevertheless, they were able to get sanction for the expenditure in that case. Uh, but that's the sort of issue that can often arise uh, at the return date. I think living expenses point is, is interesting. I, I remember there's a notorious alleged fraudster who I won't name but kept a lot of the legal profession busy for many years who, as you were saying, he had to apply to increase his living expenses from a rather modest £10,000 a week to £30 million a year. Uh, <laughs> one reason he gave was that he needed to pay for the upkeep of the lions and giraffes in his, uh, in his personal zoo. It's something that claimants sometimes forget because they think that they uh, have a right to be the judge of what reasonable expenditure is. And they look at someone's lifestyle and say, that, that's absurd, you, you don't need to do that. You can't possibly be allowed to, to spend that money. But in doing so, they're forgetting what the nature of the freezing order is. It's not security for their judgment to tie down money so they can enforce later. It's to prevent unjustified dissipation. Uh, I had a case where um, the other side resisted our application to increase the living expenses threshold on the basis that my clients had a, what they said was a champagne lifestyle. And it's, it's true, they did. They were spending way beyond <laughs> their income and their means. But that was still their lifestyle and we could prove it, because we could show that no, that's what they've been spending all along. Uh, and the judge gave the, the, the other side very short shrift and allowed us to, to, to keep the threshold where we said it should be. You didn't compromise on a Prosecco lifestyle? Absolutely not, unacceptable. Okay. Perhaps uh, just uh, coming back to your point about what sort of tactics on the return date, I mean, one point I, I think is always important for defendants to consider is, is how the timing plays out. Because you were explaining, James, the, the enormous pressures on defendants at an early stage, serve with an injunction, they have to scramble to deal with asset disclosure, expenditure, and, and, and so on. But in some respects, once you get past the return date, the time pressure can sometimes shift back to the claimants. It's very often the case that the claimants have rushed themselves to get a, a freezing injunction, perhaps without formulating their case completely. Once they've got it, there's a sort of initial sigh of relief. But then, of course, they've got to formulate the case. And it, and it seems to me sometimes defendants, if they sort of keep their powder dry and sit back and don't make too much trouble, actually put the burden then back on the claimant. I think that's right. Yeah, and you're right, you do often see it. The claimant thinks they've, they've done the job when they've got the freezing order. Uh, and actually, uh, you can be doing them a favour if you give them the breathing space to actually take the time to formulate their case. Particularly if you, if you try and challenge the freezing injunction on the merits. I mean, I mean, as we know, that that's an enormously difficult exercise anyway because of the relatively low threshold that the court applies in, in granting injunctions. It only has to be a, a tribal issue because of the, the relatively low threshold that the court applies to these applications. And, and it was by challenging it, not only do you allow the claimant the sort of breathing space to formulate their case a bit better, but to do so with knowledge of how you intend to put your defence. I mean, what, what sort of things do you look for when you're sort of deciding or advising a client as to whether or not they should discharge a freezing injunction? I, I think there are, and obviously one of the things one's looking for is non-disclosures. As, as we know, there's an obligation of full and frank disclosure. And uh, these things are often done in a, in a great hurry by claimants. And, and so often there's an opportunity to get the thing thrown out simply on the basis that it wasn't fairly presented to the judge. That, of course, is very case specific. But there are a couple of areas where, where, where I think focus is always helpful. Uh, one is in relation to risk of dissipation of assets. It's, of course, fundamental to getting the freezing injunction that um, there's got to be a risk of dissipation. But often claimants don't perhaps give that the attention that it 
deserves. Normally, there's no direct evidence of dissipation. Inferences have to be drawn, particularly in cases where perhaps the allegation of fraud has already been made and the defendant's already aware of it. There does need to be an explanation to the court about why it is that this needs to be done secretly and, and, and suddenly and how realistic it really is that the defendant's going to dissipate their assets if they, once they um, get wind of the injunction. And those points are often perhaps not explained to the court in, in, with quite the level of detail that they need to be. What about you? What are your targets? I think, like you, um, I think the two vulnerable spots for claimants are usually risk of dissipation and full and frank disclosure. I mean, the mood music coming out of the courts and the commercial court in particular on full and frank disclosure is rightly very, very strict. Uh, and it's an awful lot to ask of claimants who are under pressure. And where there has been a fraud, it is urgent. And, and they've got to balance that competing desire between getting to court to get the protection and doing so in a way that, that is going to allow their orders to be upheld. And claimants often just get it wrong. So that's definitely a place that's fertile ground for a, a discharge application. So the return date's behind us. We're moving on to the rest of the litigation. Any thoughts about uh, as things move forward? I mean, I think the, the next major battleground after you've, you've pleaded your defence is disclosure. And I think that's been turned into almost a, a bigger battleground, certainly in the business and property courts, where most fraud cases or large fraud cases are going to be because of the, the front-loading of work at the CMC under the disclosure pilot. And that, that, I think, gives you much, much more scope now to try and limit disclosure or to shape and control where disclosure is going to go. And in a fraud case, that can often be critical. So I think that's something that really does repay very careful thought. Do you think disclosure, the disclosure pilot helps claimants or, or, or defendants more? Um, I mean, obviously, from a claimant perspective, you have to give your initial disclosure at the start, which, um, but that's not normally a problem if you're pleading a fraud case. I mean, how, obviously, there's a lot of focus now on formulating lists of issues at the CNC to guide disclosure. I mean, how do you think that affects fraud cases? I think it's a mixed bag. There's something in there for claimants and there's something in there for defendants. The first thing is initial disclosure can help you. It doesn't always help in a fraud case because usually, if you've had, certainly if you've had a freezing injunction, you've already got a large swathe of documents exhibited the affidavit to justify the freezer. But if you haven't had a freezing injunction, then the initial disclosure obligation does mean that you at least get to see more of the key documents on which the claimants rely to to substantiate their case uh, and that can be helpful for deciding how strong the case is against you. Moving forward to the, the issues for disclosure, it, it does give you some scope to try and control the ambit. You don't have that automatic presumption of, of standard disclosure uh, and you can, can try and control the issues on which you're giving disclosure or, or, or the scope of your obligation there. So I think it's worthwhile paying careful attention to it but if you've got well-resourced and, and clever opponents on the other side, they're going to be alive to the issues on which they want, want disclosure. There are also definite downsides, I think, for fraud defendants. Uh, and one of them, certainly in my recent experience, is the, the willingness of the courts, because they're looking at things on an issue-by-issue -issue basis, to give more expansive disclosure than you'd otherwise get under the old, effectively automatic standard disclosure regime. So if you're looking at a particular issue, um, I found the courts really very receptive to arguments that you should have model e-disclosure, so the old Peruvian guano train of inquiry disclosure, on a particular narrow issue. So a much broader obligation than you otherwise would have been ordered to, whereas under the old regime, standard disclosure across the board, uh, and the court wouldn't, in my experience, or certainly wouldn't be very, very sympathetic to an attempt to try and say that you should have something more than standard disclosure across the board. So I think for claimants, there's a scope to try and get more than they otherwise would have got before. It's quite interesting just, just looking at some recent big fraud cases that have been in the courts that 
that quite a lot of them seem to have failed from the claimant side without the court necessarily exonerating the defendants. And I suppose I'm, I'm thinking of, um, for example, of the Tatneff case, yep. which failed on limitation, and the PCP Barclays case, where fraud was found but failed on causation, and, uh, and, and the, the SCART tax case, which, yeah. which obviously failed on a, uh, essentially on a conflicts point. Is there a lesson to be learned there? Yeah, I think there is. The courts are, aren't just going to let a claimant win just because they've been the victim of a fraud or something bad has happened to them. The, the normal rigours uh, of the law are applied. And I think the lesson for fraud defendants is to keep a very open mind as to what sorts of defences like this are out there, because they offer a real prize for defendants, particularly if you can run them at an early stage, like they did in SCAT, for example. If you're a fraud defendant, even if you eventually win at trial, it may be very messy for you, it might be quite pyrrhic. You'll have had findings made against you about what you've done, maybe adverse comments, uh, and it may not be that much comfort that well, you, you, your, your fraud wasn't causative of any loss. Whereas if you can take out a claim at an early stage without any of those findings being made, then it, it's a particular prize. And so defences, technical or otherwise, in limitation, or uh, the, the defence that was run in the SCAT case, are, are definitely things to, to have a think about. And so there's enormous scope for creative lawyering. And, and because the scope for all the, the stakes in fraud litigation is so high, particularly if it's a high value claim, it's often worth a, a difficult strikeout or summary judgment application if you think it's a runner. Um, just just to avoid the, the need for a full trial, particularly because in most fraud cases, things tend to get worse or more difficult as time goes on. The other side get disclosure, they can build their case. Uh, and then, of course, you have cross-examination where an awful lot can change. A lot of fraud cases obviously start out where the claimants have very little. They're trying to fumble around in the dark and piece together what's gone on. And the longer the case goes on, the more they know. Whereas a short, sharp surgical strike on a clean kill point early on is well worth it if you can. Often, though, obviously, the, such points aren't available. I think defendants can be confident that the judiciary are not, are not blinded by fraud allegations and it will give proper airtime to, to those kind of defences. What about witness evidence? So, uh, I think with, with witness evidence, I mean, in many ways, the issues facing a fraud defendant are very similar to those facing any defendant to, to any normal piece of litigation. But I think there's a real difficult call to be made in what witnesses you're actually going to call in the first place. It's a sort of a basic decision, but it's, it's fundamental because any witness you put up is going to afford the other side an opportunity to build and develop their case through cross-examination. And, and in the fraud context, that cross-examination can often be very damaging indeed. And uh, we we'll both have had cases where everything changes after someone's gone in the box cross-examination. So there's a sort of there should be, in my view, a, a real reluctance to put someone in the box unless you need to, unless there's a sound tactical reason for it. The other side of the, the equation is, is the risk of adverse inference, which I think you've always got to be alive to in any case, and, and certainly in fraud cases, that if you're not calling a witness who could give relevant evidence, that the court's going to draw an adverse inference against you. It's sometimes tempting to try and play a tactical game and say, oh, well, the, uh, the claimant's got the burden of proof. We can just sit tight and let them take their best, their best punch. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, if there's someone you could call who could give evidence and you don't, the courts are very, very willing in fraud cases to draw adverse inferences. So 
if you're in that situation, you need to think very carefully about whether or not there's a good reason as to why that person shouldn't be called as a witness. Certainly, I've had cases recently this year where people, to very great effect, have deployed the drawing of an adverse inference, even when actually we had a, a reasonably good reason as to why we hadn't called them. What about you? Are there any particular lessons in terms of calling witnesses? Only call good ones, I think we can. <laughs> <laughs> very sound advice. Yes. And, and of course, nowadays, the the increasing tendency of the court is to you know, be guided, not exclusively, but very heavily by contemporaneous documents. And that's obviously of particular force in fraud cases. Definitely. I mean, I suppose that's also reflected in the new um, practice direction for witness statements in business and property courts, isn't it? Where you've just got uh, the focus on evidence the witness can actually give rather than a narrative of the documents. Yes. Although that, I think, makes it all the more important, uh, particularly as a defendant, that you should be absolutely on top of knowing what documents you have. Definitely. Because I think we've all, we've all had the experience of the unfortunate document appearing at the last minute. We've been talking lots about sort of fraud litigation. What do you think about sort of settling fraud claims? Is there any particular sort of considerations that apply in this context? Well, I, th I think what I'd say about that is, is that some considerable caution is required because fraud cases, I think, have a particular tendency to reignite uh, even after they've been settled. I, I had a case which very large fraud which went to trial and was in court for about six months before it eventually settled mid cross-examination uh, only for it to sort of reappear about two years later where there was an allegation that the operation of the settlement agreement had itself involved a fraudulent misrepresentation and so we had to have another lengthy trial to um, resolve that so that's not to say that you shouldn't try and settle your fraud cases but that if you're going to you should be very careful <laughs> about um, to, to, to make sure that you, you've wrapped it all up well, I think that probably takes us through the whole sort of life cycle of a case from initial injunction up to trial and, and settlement. So I feel we've covered the lifespan here. I think we have. And uh, I think, as you said at the start, it's, it's been really interesting to talk it through from the perspective of the defendant's side rather than the claimant's side. You can find out more about recent cases in which members of 3VB have been involved and further information on all our areas of practice by visiting our website www.3vb.com or via our LinkedIn page and Twitter feed at 3VB Chambers. Music